Does a new to you recipe stress you out? What if the store doesn't have one of the ingredients listed? Can you substitute? Can you omit it? What about salt? Should you use it and what kind? My guest today knows about anxiety and anxiety in cooking. She's also got answers to those substitution questions. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 239, Food and Freedom, once a week for life. Hello folks, Dan Reed here. Welcome back to the Eating Liberty Podcast. Beef is one of the topics today. Topics today, easy for me to say. Cooking beef. Searing beef, actually, to get that good caramel and flavor. Cast iron pans are dandy for a whole lot of things, including browning ground beef. They're also quite handy for a batch of sausage and gravy for Sunday brunch. I've added a link to the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 239, which links to the same 10-inch cast iron pan I use. It's actually the replacement for the one I wore out. Jessica Formicola is my guest today. Jessica recently published a book called Beef It Up. In her first life, Jessica was a psychotherapist, but left that to pursue recipe writing and developing, and has turned that into Savory Experiments, a successful online business. Jessica has written for print magazines such as Better Homes and Gardens and made TV appearances and so much more. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for joining me today on the Eating Liberty Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm excited about this because you you have a previous profession, which I think in some ways really relates to some concerns, certain people, cooks, not certain people, cooks and, and well, in, in my case, bakers too, um, will, will have when they face a new challenge. And so they say, what are you talking about? Well, you used to be a psychotherapist and now you're not. But I, there, there's, I'm going to use the word phobia, probably incorrectly, but I think people will get it. I think there's a lot of phobias people have, a lot of fears, concerns, uh, with with cooking. I can't do that. So before we get into that part, let's get a brief bio about you and some of your previous work and now what you do now. Sure, sure. So my name is Jessica. I used to be a psychotherapist, as you said. I worked with patients doing all sorts of things for about 12 years. And when I finally retired from that, um, I was an administrator, which, you know, when you look back at things, you're like, that's crazy. So I, I started writing about food on the side just because I needed my own kind of therapy. My husband and I don't have our family living near us, but we both come from large Italian families that really valued dinner together, especially Sunday dinner as a place to kind of come together into the week and then start up on a good foot. 
So we'd invite all of our friends over for Sunday dinner and I'd cook. And whether this was a good choice or not, it was usually my time to test new recipes. Um, Hindsight, probably shouldn't do that when uh, you have guests, but they all knew us and understood. And there was kind of this running joke that if it sucked, we'd order a pizza. So people started asking for the recipes. The only thing was, is I was really bad about actually following the recipes I was using. It was poor measuring, you know, eyeballing things or adding stuff and not writing it down. And, and I never remembered. So I, one day when a patient no showed, Googled how to start a food blog so that I could start writing it down for people It forced me to write it down. And then they could all find it in one place without me sending emails. And at that point in time, this is 12, 13 years ago now, food blogging wasn't really a thing. Blogging was, I guess, um, food blogging was up and coming, but people weren't doing it as a career. It was a hobby. They were still posting photos they took on their cell phone, telling you stories about their kids and their husband and their cat. And and then there'd be a very unrelated recipe underneath it. And um, I just started posting recipes. There wasn't even an intro, which nowadays people would probably love because the number one complaint is all the jibber jabber. But it's it slowly evolved and grown. And I remember the first time coming home from work one day and telling my husband there were 30 people looked at my recipe, 30 people looked at my website today, 30 people, I didn't know them, 30 old people. And now we literally have millions of hits. So it's crazy how how it's just continued to evolve to the point where I'm sitting here talking to you and writing cookbooks and appearing on TV. Another thing I never thought I'd say as, as a psychotherapist back in the day, but you're right. The tools that I used as a psychotherapist to help my patients then that applied to other things totally unrelated to food are, are tools that I now try to instill in my readers And it's what makes our website, Savory Experiments, very different from the others. We're not trying to force you to like cooking. We're not trying to just like get it over with. We're trying to help you reframe enjoying this. And how can I learn to enjoy this instead of thinking about it as being a chore and really looking at it as an art form and a way to unwind and a way to have quality family time instead of just something you have to do. There's a carryover similarity in restaurants that I found very fascinating. And for some point in time, I was that cook where there, there is a – and there's still a very clear division between the bakers and the hotline cooks. And the hotline and, – and managing service on a hotline on a busy restaurant with lots of menu items is <laughs> – it's it's a skill for sure, but there's also a craft to that. And some of the most amazingly talented line cooks I've ever seen would refuse. I am not making a biscuit. I mean, this is like this biscuits and muffins are the easiest things you can make. Oh no no no, I'm not doing it. And it's like wait a minute. And it was just this impenetrable fear. I joined. It might be something else, but it's not that show of, of just refusal. I can't do it, and I don't know what it was, but <laughs> so I decided to find out. I became a baker and then a head baker, so I do all those things, but it, that remains. And then, the yeah, it's just weird. So I understand 
even 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 with my children, even with other, and, and it's weird. And maybe you have this mm-hmm. that people people know I'm a chef. I had an aunt who, when I was going to when I was going to culinary school at 19, this woman had been my other mother. It was there all the time. You're going to culinary school? Oh no, I'm not cooking for you. What do you mean? And feed me my whole life. <laughs> it's like, what changed? I'm going to a school. It's like, it's just, it's weird. People get kind of silly when they, oh, you're in food. Oh my, you can't eat here. I, I This is terrible. You can't eat my food. It's like, stop. It's craziness. It, yeah, I get that. I get that a lot, actually. People being a kind of a little scared. But then they're also surprised by me sometimes. Like for Easter, we went out for Easter brunch. We ended up having some friends over afterwards and they had my husband pick up a ham at Walmart. I was like, you know, I cook for a living. I don't want to cook on the holidays too. This is all I do. So you know what? The kids are going to have chicken nuggets tonight and we're having a Walmart ham and that's okay sometimes. But um, we had a couple of people over that had never been to my house before. They were astonished that I wasn't going to like pull out this huge... Easter menu. No, we went to brunch. I want to enjoy myself. There's a time and a place. There's a time and a place. But I get the same thing. There are people that I think are intimidated. But, you know, and I'm sure you'll agree, I actually didn't go to culinary school. Half of what I do is teaching myself. I have um, textbooks from culinary school that I read like novels at night before bed. People think I'm insane. And then I kind of test myself on it in the kitchen. But I'm also not afraid of failure. And I a lot of professional chefs, I think will agree that we all fail. You know, I, I'm still trying to master biscuits. Who are we kidding? And, and there are so many different types of biscuits and ways to make them. And, and it's one of those things where I think there are a million great biscuits, but no perfect biscuit. Right. And it's, it can be intimidating on both sides of the story. Sometimes too, as a chef, people just don't Get your taste in food. I mean, I have some people that think my food's a little too salty. I think it's perfectly seasoned, and you know, other folks might go in the opposite direction. So who knows? It's it, there's 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 a little intimidation, fear, and phobia on both sides of the coin. Right. For so in the last, I mean, it's just like we'll say 10, 12 years, you've been doing red developing recipes and so you've written a cookbook uh beef it up is the name of the book in now i don't know how much food bloggers since i don't actually engage food bloggers in the comments section i have no way of knowing how many people actually do that sometimes i look at a recipe page and there's lots and lots of comments so that's good do you get comments at all and then what is it assumed as one? Are there some some themes to their concerns or their apprehensions about doing cooking? Um, for some folks, it's I, I do get a lot of comments. Let me back it up there. I do get a lot of comments. I wake up every morning to at least twenty to thirty com- new comments. But wow. uh, the website in itself has over 2000 recipes on it. So there's, I mean, there's bound to be people. And majority of the time, the comments are just really positive. Like I really enjoyed this. My family enjoyed this. Sometimes there's a question about more of the technique. This morning it was um, a bunt cake that I had made, but I had made it, or it was like a loaf cake and they wanted to make it in a bunt pan. And how do I do this? How do I, how do I adjust the recipe? And 
know, that response is just, I haven't tried it, but if I was going to, this is where I'd start kind of a thing. But then the, the most common theme is usually how do I adjust this for my personal preference? Whether that be, I don't like this ingredient X, Y, Z, or I want to make it gluten-free, which I don't even, I don't mess with the gluten-free stuff. That's not how we eat. And I'm not an expert there, but what I saw from that, again, this kind of goes back to being a small business, but also being a therapist is when you start to see a common theme of people saying, how do I adjust these things? It to me was a signal that people wanted to learn how to do this themselves and learn how to do this in other recipes. So what we started doing was we do have a lot of jibber jabber, if you will, before the recipe on, on our blog and our website, but it's all knowledge based it's a list of ingredients and then what you can use for substitutions. There is an entire section on variations to give people the confidence to make adjustments and really create recipes to make them their own instead of them being mine. I want you to take it and do something different with it. And I want to hear about that, but then you can take the same ingredient and use it in a different recipe, not mine, maybe your grandma's, maybe a cookbook someplace else and, and know how, to best utilize it. And that's what people found relatable. It was, we're learning how to do this here. I'm not just going to follow a recipe. I'm going to actually feel like I'm a better home cook after I make it because I've learned something. And that was the big takeaway. So we still do that. And when somebody asks one of these questions, we go back through the post to see if it's there already. And sometimes it is. They just didn't read the post, which is fine. We have a handy jump to recipe button right at the top for everybody who wants to skip over all the nonsense. Um, but, but if it isn't, we always add it to the post. Because if one person has the question, I'm sure a lot of people do. And I'm lazy. I don't usually take the time to write a question, leave a comment, or find an email, although there are plenty right. of people that do. You know, um, and then, of course, the haters. We all have haters, well, right? Whatever. <laughs> um, you know, and, and there's and, – and the thing that I get a lot is mm-hmm. people who are really good at, say, like, like craft, scrapbooking, or just being able to look at a pile of paper and say, oh – well, that would make a really fantastic eight-dimensional multicolored suede lamp. Like, really? Okay, it looks like a pile of paper to me. Um, so the people who have genuine skill, who can see a finished product in a pile of stuff, seem to be completely dumbfounded when it comes to cooking. Now, there is absolutely a skill to it, but there's this... Um, this generalized knowledge, this ability to just sort of take this idea and change it, it's as if – it's like now they're doing open-heart surgery. What happens if I cut this thing? Well, in open-heart surgery, you probably ought to do that, but I'm not an open-heart surgeon. But if you want to add yellow peppers instead of red peppers, the kitchen's not going to catch on fire. It's <laughs> just this – No. This – the recipe, the words on the page are from on high. God gave them to you and don't you dare change. It's like, no, come on. And it's it's a real challenge to help that cook. And these are people who can cook. They cook. Oh, yeah. the, they've been feeding their family for 30 years. And now I come along and baby, 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 baby
You can do these things. So um, I've, been, I've been watching some of your videos and one of the things you've, and, I'm, and I guess we, we sort of share this in the way that we do it, is trying to, reaching the seasoned, <laughs> pun intended, cook or chef, but really it's the person who's opening a cookbook for the first time. They have a reason. So now they're a parent. Now they're living on their own. Now mom is sick and they need to cook and whatever. There's a thousand different reasons, but now they're going to cook. There's lots of ways to do it wrong. And a lot of the, and my big complaint is recipe, it's a, it's a list of ingredients on a page. Big deal. The real magic or frustration happens in the procedure. Cook mm -hmm. this on high for five minutes. How do you know? What's high on your stove compared to high on my stove? What, five minutes? What if it burns in three? Do I still cook for two more minutes? I mean, it's like, what do I do? And reaching that young cook, young in experience, not young in age, to, and this is where the hard part comes, and I want you to share how you do this. How do you teach a skill that really requires you being there through words on a page? It, it can be challenging depending on the skill, and I'm sure you'd agree with that. We do our best to try and provide visualizations for people, whether it's a smell we're making a roux and we want to wait until it smells like popcorn. And there are people be like, Oh my God, it smells like popcorn. And you're like, yep, nailed it. Um, or, or a color, whether it's caramel or tan or, or, you know, talking about caramelizing onions, we try to provide those things because you're right. Everybody's is different. And even when we're baking, I give a range of time instead of an exact time because I want people to start checking at this time. I don't know that your oven doesn't have hot spots and isn't 10 degrees over 10 degrees under. Um, and, but providing these super, super detailed instructions to some expert cooks, expert home cooks, they find that really annoying. And I have actually funny gotten comments before about people being annoyed that they are so detailed. But to me, I don't want to intimidate the good kudos to you for knowing all the things, but I don't want the novice chef to, to be able to be intimidated by trying this recipe because they don't know how to poach an egg. So instead of saying, po you know, poach an egg and put it on top, we talk about how to poach an egg, why to poach an egg, why this matter, you know, the chemistry behind it, so that they really understand the process there, not just to poach an egg. And it goes for everything in life, right? When you understand the whys behind it, somehow those gears start turning and clicking and moving better going forward. So the visualizations are great. And now with technology, we can make these awesome videos. So it is like you have an instructor there with you right. that you can watch several times over and over again. So we make videos as often as we can. I found that it's something I actually really enjoy. I wish I could make more of them, but you know, costs and time and all of that kind of stuff get in the Editing. way. Oh. Life. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I got smart and hired a production team. But oh, that's a good idea. Then comes the cost. So it's, you know, one thing or another. But but I agree with you. It's it's a life skill. And I don't want anybody to be intimidated by a recipe, even if it's a recipe that sounds challenging. I want them to get into the kitchen and feel confident in their ability to nail it. 
Right. Now, the the poached egg thing is funny. The probably the highest level cookbook that I can think of is Escoffier's La Guide Culinaire. It's written entirely for people who have spent 30, a long time in the kitchen and they know what's going on. So the running joke is, you know, braise this beef in the usual manner. What the hell is the usual manner? So poached egg in the usual manner. Ugh, it's not helping me. So, yeah. Exactly. How do you do that? It's a multi-step thing. It's not just do this. and mm-hmm. well, That's a good point. And even some of the larger publications don't do that. I mean, I read recipes from Bon Appetit and, and Better Homes and Gardens and a whole bunch of other ones. And the, the technique portion is so far off. It's just, I can understand why people would be a little bit discouraged from trying things when, when they don't, you know, they can't really read, read between the lines as well as other more experienced cooks. Well, I'm I'm going to def- I'm I'm not ar- disarguing I'm not arguing that that's true I I know it is I have a story to tell about that but I'm my defense to the publications could be that there's a space limitation to how much they're allowed to get into and I don't know I don't publish magazines however I did work for a guy who's going to remain nameless who at one point in time was extraordinarily well known and the. One of those, I forgot who it was, one of those very, very big magazines came to him for his then very, very famous dessert. And they gave it to him. It was wrong. Couldn't be done. Couldn't. We tried. A different cook and I, we was like, we need to put this on the menu. We tried two dozen times as written, and it could not be created. It was impossible. And that's discouraging. Yes. So you think it's you, the cook? It's not. Well, I don't. It's not. I don't know how often that happens, but I was very I was like, well, I have a whole new appreciation. Well, appreciation is the wrong word, but changed my opinion about that guy dramatically because the people who are going to make it at home, they want to do that. They're not taking anything away from you. It's a compliment to you. They're still going to come back and get it, but it's like, wow, look what I did. I made this thing. Um, but anyway, so yeah. Um, one of the things I think you've come up with a thing, maybe this is the psychology, is it, I, I'm good, maybe I don't want to, <laughs> this is the wrong career. Maybe this is, I would say psychologist, but the psychotherapist figuring out how to uh, ameliorate stress before it happens. And you've come up with what you call the four S's. So, what are the four S's? They are sauces, seasonings, swaps, and substitutions, we say, and uh, salt. Salt is the big one. Probably the, should be the first one. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're not reinventing the wheel. It's just kind of an easy way for the home cook to say, okay, what can I do here to stop and think about these four fairly easy ways to elevate any meal. Even if you're making, you know, Kraft Mac and cheese, you can take it to another level if we start thinking about adding some sauces, adding some swaps, adding some salt and adding some seasoning. And, and it's just an easy way to remember these four very basic pillars of cooking, which if you stop and look at professional chefs and professional menus, you'll start to see 
these themes reoccurring over and over and over again. You look at a menu and tell me how many dishes aren't served with some sort of a sauce. How many dishes are completely salt free? You know, none. and you start look none, right? So you start to notice these similarities in and how you can make your own home meals a little bit more more gourmet and elevated, just using very simple techniques and knowledge. So we we've actually talked about it, but I'm going to suggest a fifth S, uh, okay. which broadly is the senses. So sounds, smell, and sight, and. When I wrote my cookbook, the because I don't know how long it takes in your house. I don't know how big your pan is. I don't know how hot your stove is. So I don't know how many minutes it's going to take. But I do know that if you that you can listen to the pan. So a really hot pan, put some ground beef in the pan on a nice hot pan. It's going to be high pitch, of pss, really, really high. And as the water comes out, you can listen to the pitch drop. So mm -hmm. you can hear the heat going away by how the pan sounds. So that's one. The, the main problem, people come, oh, it's going to burn. Well, so add the garlic. How long do I add it? I have no idea. But when you start to smell the garlic, now you need to act with urgency. You need to get something wet in that pan, at least to take the heat out. Now you have bought yourself a few seconds of time to do the next thing. So... Um, and I think that's really one of the ways, without maybe even people realizing it, that they're teaching people skills that they can use in cooking. Listen to oh, the pan. Yeah, you know, that's, that is fabulous. I'm, you're going to see that on my site. I didn't even, <laughs> we talk a lot about the senses. You're right. But I, we also talk about how you eat with your eyes long and your nose long before you ever taste something. So if something doesn't look appealing or, or doesn't, doesn't smell appealing, I'm thinking about like burnt garlic and how it, right. you know, it's well, bitter no and, and it's unappealing. It's no good. And, and while you're cooking and while you're presenting, the senses are just so present. It's one of those, again, things that's so right in front of your face that you almost forget. It's so easy that you forget to even mention it, but you're 100% you're right. These are, and well, thank you. This is, I think, really what's, this is the thing I think the young cooks are looking for is how mm -hmm. to, because you, you said in your videos, this is my recipe, you take it. You adapt it, you don't want peppers, don't have, who cares? Don't have pepper, add an apple cabbage. I don't care what you do with your pot thai, who cares? You're the one that's got to eat it. But learning to, so the, the aesthetics at the end, which isn't an S, sight. <laughs> Um, but really the, the cooking process and then the end process, the enjoyment process, there's the, the most reinforcing thing I think that can happen to anyone who cooks food, particularly those, those novice cooks is put the food down and that when someone's face lights up, like, wow, look at that. You can't buy that kind of reinforcement. It's like, man, I'll be, I'll, yeah, I'll do this again. Because that that look of, even know what it is, it's just, it's like amazement and then eating and then those sort of 
reflex of gustatorial satisfaction. It's like, yeah, all right. That was good. I totally get it. I, I, at all of our cores, we just want to make the people we love happy, right? Or just others happy in general. And food is one of those excellent vessels to do that. It's an excellent way to do that. And as, as a home cook, as a chef, there's, there's nothing better than seeing somebody's face light up. And, and there's nothing they, more disappointing when they don't. Oh my gosh, you've worked on this. And so they're like, and nobody says anything. They just eat like it's a normal dinner. And you're like, geez, guys, you know, even if you're lying, give me a little pat back here. Yeah, something. That's, <laughs> yeah, and think about that. That's true. And as an Italian, you know, it's Sunday. So, so Friday, start the Sunday gravy. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's, oh, there's only four of us. Well, let's just make 35 dishes. It's a small dinner. <laughs> tasting menu <laughs> we've all seen the memes and we all know that they're actually probably true um so let's talk about your book beef it up it is it was it was a labor of love so i, I mean i'm sure you know beef beef isn't the most popular topic at the moment no. and there's been Definitely been some controversy, but I still enjoy beef. And I've worked for a long time with the Certified Angus Beef brand, which is unique. It's a brand of beef, but they only use local farmers. And I I still love to purchase things local and eat local, which is important to me. And they, even though they're a larger brand, have all of these local ranchers. And I have gotten to spend time with the local ranchers, a couple of them being female ranchers, which was also very interesting because most of the time people think of ranching and farming as as kind of a typical man's job. But the amount of respect and knowledge and care that goes into cattle ranching is absolutely amazing. And because of the length of time and the amount of space and all the things that it's just a different feeling than seeing pig, you know, pig ranchers and, and, and chicken farmers and other, other types of farming. And my family, I grew up, I'm Italian, but my mom's family's from Nebraska, grew up on farms, been around farms, been around, all sorts of livestock, different types of livestock. And cattle ranching just has a different vibe to it where it's it's almost sacred. My, my family also hunts. My husband's a hunter and so we eat a lot of venison, but there's a whole kind of ritual that goes into when he does kill a deer and making sure that every part of that deer is used and thanking the earth for it and, and those types of things. And I still find that in cattle ranching where I don't in other livestock ranching. So when the publisher who, who put this out story got in touch with me and they're like, Hey, you know, you're really a beef advocate. We want to do a beef book. Would you be interested? I said, sure. I want to, I want to bring beef back to the table and have people not feel guilty for eating it. Understanding that things can be enjoyed in moderation and that you're not a horrible person killing the earth. If you decide you want a hamburger or a steak, it's okay. And like so many things in life, there's a lot of misinformation out there about cattle ranching or maybe half information being shared and they don't want to get too too into the political environmental pieces of that. But I wanted to make a beef book that 
had comfort classics, but with new twists on them. So some of the things you'll see in there are a lot of vegetables, a lot of color. It's a very bright book. We kind of joked that we wanted to stay away from it being just shades of brown because so many beef dishes are shades of brown. And so, so I really wanted to come to life and be appetizing, talking about the senses again there, but also making it not just an entree. So we've got appetizers, we have salads, we have soups. And then I got all these bonus recipes of sides like compound butters and ways and sauces and ways to really brighten up meals that it doesn't have to be steak either. So it was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it. But the thing that I felt most passionately about and had to fight with my editors about was the first chapter. Uh, They wanted, you know, mainly recipes. And I said, I think it's really important to share why. I feel so passionate about beef, but also, again, coming back to that knowledge base for a home cook. So beef is a funny thing. There are over 150 cuts of beef when you break down a a cow and a cattle. And it is called different things in different places, depending on where you live geographically or what grocery store you go to. You know, something's labeled pot roast. That's just a chuck roast. That's a tender chuck roast. And people get really confused. And instead of asking a butcher who butchers love talking about this kind of stuff, they're actually usually very helpful and will talk your ear off. But instead of asking, they look for a, a cut of beef that they believe looks similar to the cut they're looking for in shape and size. And unfortunately, it's not like chicken or some cuts of pork, most cuts of pork. They all have to be cooked very specifically. They all have a different way to really make them shine, whether it's really high heat, quick sear, or it needs to be tenderized, whether that's manually or marinated or something that needs to be done really low and slow with a braising or something that would really be best on a smoker. So I wanted to have that first chapter be about cuts of beef. So we have this great grid in it that shows you different cuts of beef, different names for those and the best ways to prepare them and why, whether it's, you know, where they are located on the animal or how much fat they have or connective tissues and stuff like that, but also swaps. So if your store doesn't have X, Y, and Z, you can have this knowledge base to be able to make a, a choice that isn't just a similar shape and size. It actually will be best suited to the recipe. But we also talk about things like browning beef, which is seems like, again, one of those really simple tasks. But how many novice home cooks kind of do it too low, and then you end up with gray, rubbery, chewy beef instead of, you know, a nice, bright, beefy flavor of ground beef? Or salts. I have an entire section on salts in that first chapter as well, as well as seasonings, kind of an ingredient list of of things that pair well with beef and how to serve them. So that first chapter was twice the size as it is in the book and got cut in half. I also talked about the process of ranching and, and the respect for the ranchers. And most of that is what, what got taken taken out but we did get to leave the the fun grid and and best ways to cook beef and kitchen tools that i can't live without like my cast iron and stuff like that yeah the cut colloquialism i think is really a big problem and i think in in this realm of the the variety of names for the exact same cut can cause 
the easily intimidated, and that's not a that's not a judgment. That's I mean, all of us in a in in an area where we aren't an expert, will will feel <laughs> completely out of our depth. So going into a butcher store and asking for this thing that you used to call it in New Hampshire, and you go into an in Oregon and say, "What are you talking about?" Well, it's it's not that you don't know; it's that they don't call it that there. And I don't actually have a specific example, but I know that there is uh, an aversion to feeling like looking like you're an idiot. People mm-hmm. are not going to want to do that, so they'll they'll not engage the butcher, who will be more than happy to explain, especially at a butcher shop. Mm-hmm. Now, and usually they have it in the back, even if you don't see it in the case. Right. Sometimes the availability too, like um, West Coast. Uh, my sister lives out in California, and, and like things like tri tips, very popular there. Whereas it's the here, unofficial I, cut of meat in Oregon, it's huge. Right? Oh, it is. <laughs> I have actually never been to Oregon. Portland's on my list, but we over here. I'm in like Baltimore, Washington D.C. area, and man, if I find a tri tip, it's like I've won the lottery. It's <laughs> just you can't find it around. Like I have a butcher that I can ask for. It. He'll he'll cut me some, but you know, it's just one of those funny things where geographically, it's just completely different. It's it is the thing here, and the, there's a butcher shop in my town, and he he sells them just you know raw, of course the raw mm-hmm. versus that he has his own uh, his own marinade. Oh, okay. They, they put it in the marinade, and this was interesting. This was completely unexpected, although I should have known better. Um, I'm a big fan of this guy's marinade. He has a dry rub, and then he came up with a sugar-free dry rub, which is even better, which is so good. But there's just this marinade. And uh, the name of the shot, the marinade is called Pop Powers. It's available on Amazon. But, oh, my God, this is so good. The problem is, and this is what – I didn't know it was going to happen. I have no idea how long it was in the marinade in the cryovac bag, but it cured the meat. Like, well, that's not what I wanted. I don't mind it for a day. Mm-hmm. This has gone too much. And I was like, eh. So the flavor was good. I wasn't crazy about the final product. So now I know for me, <laughs> I'm not getting cured beef. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, tri-tip is a, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy out here. How, how much that's the thing. Well, although, you know, beef in general out here is a thing. Um, you talked a little bit and, and it was an interesting point about getting, you have a phrase I want you to say about getting a good sear on ground beef. I'm going to talk about why that matters. Well, ground beef, so people, people tend to miscook it all the time. And I, I want a hot, searing like we're talking about the senses again i want a steaming hot cast iron pan really well seasoned and and i actually plop it in and just kind of a big block and let it brown don't touch it everybody wants to play with it fiddle with it but if you <laughs> if your beef can't touch the hot the heat if it's not touching the heating element then then you're not going to get that nice brown so doing that sears the outside of it cooks it really well and brown equals flavor brown does not equal burnt 
in many cases. So all of these recipes like chilies and stuff that start with brown your beef, they say brown your beef, but they don't tell again, we're going back to this, they don't tell people how to brown their beef. So they're doing it incorrectly. And maybe they're just, you know, kind of lightly sauteing it, which just turns to this gray rubbery mess that doesn't have any flavor. So what they do is then they add in beef broth, thinking that it's going to then absorb liquid, but beef does not do that the same way other other things do. And now they don't like ground beef. Either that or it's too lean. And and this is another mm. place where beef comes in where you, you can't fat in this world of everybody feeling like they need to be super skinny, fat is not a bad thing in food. And again, one of the places where we'll see a difference between restaurant food and home cooked food, I, I don't need to eat prime rib every day of the week. But when I'm working with something like ground beef, you're going to get a much better result if you have a beef that has 20% fat in it, or even 25. It's not only flavor, but it's also going to help with the texture that you get in the outcome. And depending on what you're making, serve as part of the binder, whether it's a really good hamburger patty, which I believe should really just be ground beef, salt, pepper, and, and, you know, that's it. Or a Salisbury steak, which is one of those funny things that I call a lunch lady meal that you can actually make fairly gourmet if you really want to, which is also in the book. We use like caramelized onion gravy. But it, anyway, it's so that sounds good. Every it really is. It's it's a really good one. It's caramelized onion um, gravy with mushrooms. And and then I encourage people to add other things in. I usually make mine with spinach and peas. So hmm. anyway, off topic. No, but, I, I but, like I like a good Salisbury steak. I do too. It's but again, it's the shades of brown. Like I think of, I remember it from elementary school. They probably don't serve it in elementary schools well, anymore. That's but probably you know, not a good comparison. Probably not. But it's yeah. I didn't eat it for most of my adult years because I had vivid nightmares of it coming out in these giant metal tins. <laughs> you know, back in the eighties. It's banquet it brand. Like. Yeah, yes, like just slop, and you know. But man, I I made it as an adult for a brand. Actually, I didn't even a brand hired me to make a recipe for it. I was like, oh, this isn't this isn't bad. Actually, I think we can make this good. I think we can make this work, and we did. And it's now become one of our favorite recipes. But you know, especially in this time and place, with again, you're looking at economy and the price of of ingredients. You know, just eggs. Like there are families that need to feed their entire family on a budget, and ground beef is still a really good way to get a full source of protein and feed your entire family on a budget. So they're looking for ways to eat it and eat it well. Do you grind your own? Or do you buy a ground? I do have a grinder, but I generally buy it ground. I have um, an excellent local butcher that uh. I can kind of give a call to, depending on what I'm making. I actually have him now grinding my pork too for sausages, and then I'll stuff them myself. But I, I got a little bit lazy as as I started to get busier with work, and I had two children that are still fairly small; they're three and a half and five and a half. Uh, my time to do things like making homemade pasta 
pasta and grinding my own beef has stuff. started to also go out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do involve them in the kitchen. One of the things we also talk about a lot is cooking being a family affair. I mean, being Italian, it's everybody's in the kitchen. You know, everybody has, they all have a job. You all have a job in the kitchen and you line the counter and you do your job, whether it's making the meatballs or crushing the tomatoes with your hands or, or cutting up the salad or just being the sauce stir. You know, we have a timer, an egg timer that would go off every 15 minutes, goes through the sauce so it doesn't scald. But it, it, um, my kids, even at three and five, are in the kitchen with me all the time. And they love the KitchenAid. The meat grinder, not something I want them to have their fingers in. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, so the, the same butcher, he does have and goes through crazy amounts of ground beef. And I buy it from him when I'm in a pinch. Uh, mm-hmm. I grind it myself. I buy a really nice fatty piece of chuck. Um, mm-hmm. But in the in a real pinch, like say it's after the it's done, the butcher's closed, I will get the stuff from the store, and I've tried what looks like store grind versus the commercial tubes, which I try desperately mm-hmm. to avoid. And mm-hmm. what I what seems to be the case is so I grind I grind one time through the regular medium plate, and that's medium. the texture I expect. That's the texture I want. Um, mm-hmm. The butcher shop stuff is the same. The stuff from the store, even if it looks like it's store ground and the, the tube stuff is just terrible, it is – it's almost like a paste. It's not even ground. It's like – I don't know what, Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Obs, it's yeah. almost offensive. It's just like there's nothing there. It's pure water. By the time I get done, I can't – you couldn't brown it if you wanted to. No, no, no. And maybe that's why it didn't even occur to me. But you know, funny, again, funny story, learning from your mistakes, the first time I ever made homemade sausage, I, in my head, and this is like nine, 10 years, it was the first thing I made when I got a meat grinder was homemade sausage, actually. And I ground it too fine. I, in my head, it was like, well, we're just going to tenderize it again. Like what could be wrong? Like maybe, you know, we'll get a better texture, the finer that it is. And that was the last time that ever happened, we made the, it was great oh. flavor, bad texture, and learned my lesson there. It, it depends on what you're making. So if you're making a bratwurst, you definitely want it very, very fine. But here's now. Yeah. Uh, now I don't know what you made. I'm going to I'm going to make a generalized guess that probably it was too lean in the fat department. Because this is the thing oh. most people don't know about sausage is it's going to be. Really, it needs to be about 30% fat. Yeah. No, we actually, we were good on the fat. I actually bought extra, <laughs> extra, good for extra you. fat to put on in there and chop it on up. We were just doing a standard, you know, Italian sausage. And I did some red wine and and other fun herbs in there with, with shallots and garlic. But it, again, the flavor was on. It was just the, the execution was off thinking yeah. you were doing better instead mm-hmm. of worse. But you, you live, you learn, you know, going forward, right? Even in cooking, oftentimes less is more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So you mentioned one of the S's. You you said it should have been first. Let's talk about salt. And and actually, you and I, we have a disagreement about salt. You don't know that yet. Okay. So I, I agree with you entirely <laughs> about salt. My disagreement with you is about commercial white salt of any particular name. If it comes in a blue or a red box, avoid it completely. Okay. Okay. And, so and you, I know- like, I use a lot of coarse kosher salt in red and blue boxes. Um, 
and that's kind of my my standard. So if you're not using the commercial, what are you using? Um, by name, Redmond Real Salt. Okay. I'll have to, to grab some of that. So I think one of the things is that most of my readers, they want to eat well, they want good food, but they also don't necessarily have access to a lot of the more upscale ingredients or, or the budget for it, quite frankly. So we kind of have a saying and that if we can't find the ingredients at our standard, we have a giant and a Safeway around here. Mm. We can't find the ingredients at Giant and Safeway. That is, it's something that we're going to to really publish. If somebody has to buy it off Amazon or, or special order it or find a Whole Foods or a Trader Joe's, is that something that's going to resonate with our audience? And the answer is usually no. Those types of recipes generally flop for us because the ingredients aren't readily available to folks and the red and blue boxes are. So that's what we, what we tend to stick with. The only exception to that is I love me some Maldon sea salt and that always isn't always available at the general giant or Safeway. And I do encourage people to, to order some of that as a special finishing salt. Although I carry it, I, carry it with me everywhere I go, although this is Jacobson. I have Jacobson too. I literally have travel tins of this. I know you guys can only hear me. I am showing a travel tin of Jacobson sea salt because I never leave home without it. You know, you got your chapstick, your salt. This is one of those old fashioned and your um, set. Uh mints container with the the top. Yeah. Uh, So there's a whole generation of people who don't know this exists, but there it's a little metal tin and the top if you use your thumb, it will slide sideways to expose the contents of the tin, and then you close it back up. Mm-hmm. And this is what mm-hmm. breath mints used to be kept before they were put in paper. They were put in, in tins. That's awesome. Yes. That's fantastic. So I buy my salt in the buckets, and I <laughs> and I refill my tins, <laughs> and, and uh, I stash them everywhere. That one was in my desk drawer. But there are some in my purse and my car and uh, slightly obsessed, slightly obsessed. People make fun of me, but they ask me for my salt when we're out to eat. Yeah, they make fun of you, but then they'll ask you for it. So charge them. So let me ask you this then. Do you agree with me about like an iodized table salt? I very, very, very rarely used like Morton's like table salt, like the old fashioned little girl. I don't buy it. It's not in the house. It doesn't exist. No. Okay. We don't, we don't either. Okay. So we agree on that. Okay, good. Well, and the, the problem with, the problem with those commercial salts is the same for all of them. It's that they, they have been abused and destroyed of their innate nature to make mostly sodium chloride. Now, Mm-hmm. We as Americans and perhaps Earthlings in general, but I only know about Americans, have been improperly and very effectively conditioned to think that salt, sodium, is our enemy. Sodium mm-hmm. is absolutely vital, critical for, for, for life. No sodium, no life. It's that simple. Um so it has been maligned in lots of ways that I've gone into in other shows. The the big problem with its absence, all those micronutrients that are missing, they've also added a uh, – there's, there's something they add to the outside to make it free-flowing. 
So mm-hmm. what is, I, I think it's a net negative. What's, what remains is less than what was removed. And the addition of that, of that anti-caking agent is just, I don't want that. And then that's the reason mm-hmm. I don't buy those blue and red boxes. And I tell people not to buy the blue and red boxes. Um, the salt I mentioned, Redmond is available at one of the stores in my town. Okay. Um, it is also available on Amazon. And I recognize the very real concern about wanting the readers, wherever they are, to be able to get the thing. Now, I put parsnips in a lot of my recipes. I'm the only one that likes them, but I put them in there because I recognize that they're flavor. I also recognize that maybe some grocery stores aren't going to carry that. Well, so it's a substitution or an omission time. Don't can't get parsnips? Well, <laughs> then don't use them. Um, Who doesn't like parsnips? My Come wife, <clears throat> my kids. Oh. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a valid. It's a valid note to say that I want the people who are reading this book, wherever they are reading the book, to be able to get mm-hmm. nearly everything that's there. And you don't have to have a sous vide tabletop immersion thingy to cook my recipe. I don't have sous vide. Mm-hmm. I have no interest in sous vide. I could care less about sous vide because it's one, I don't have room for it. It's too specialized. I don't have an air fry. I don't have an instant pot. I've got a stove and 30 pans. I'm good. But 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 salt is an issue. It's important to me to not have the things. And mm-hmm. and that's a personal decision. And then, and you're right about mm-hmm. budget. It it isn't the blue box salt, the red box salt is more affordable per pound than the other stuff. But I also use less of it. But I, I want I want the micronutrients that are in there. I also have a, a very clever uh, salt grinder that I buy the uh, big, not big, biggest relative, uh, hunks of uh, pink Himalayan salt that goes into the grinder mm. and then we grind at the mm-hmm. table. Uh, yeah, that's um, yeah. 4,000 years old. It's not that. fresh salt. It's like, it's just, it's cute. <laughs> it's nice. But it's, like, it's, it's, it's not fresh. It's not like going out picking the basil. Oh, this is 4,000 year old basil. Well, I'll pass. Thank you very much. It's new to your kitchen. It's yeah. fresh to your kitchen. Freshly you ground from, it's like the, the, it's like, uh, the salt with the expiration date. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's a great thing about salt, so you could buy them and they last forever. Can- it is the great thing about salts. And here's the other. So the sea salts you mentioned, and there are, I'm going to guess, probably literally thousands of choices uh-huh. to buy. And some of them might be only available locally to you. Um, there is, I haven't met him. I talked to him and his mom online, a place in Oregon that they do sort of the old-fashioned evaporating way to make this crystal sea salt, which mm-hmm. now this is kind of, I don't mean to go too deep into sea salts, but there is a bit different. So the stuff that you add to food is the blue box, the red box, the stuff that I buy, the, the, there's many of that can go into the food that will disappear. Some mm-hmm. salts, including like, now this is maybe one exception would be the, the pretzel salt. Because I like the big hunks because mm-hmm. it ain't. So if you put that on like the outside of a chicken breast with skin on or on the outside of a salmon with skin on and sear the skin with that salt on there, the salt won't melt. 
because it doesn't melt at that low of a temperature, but it makes a really nice, crispy, crunchy flavor bit every once in a while. And that's kind of a fun thing. Um, but those flaky salts you're talking about are finishing salts. So tell us what, what does that mean? It sounds very fancy. It is, it is. And you too can be fancy. And finishing salt can go on nearly anything, which is, I think, one of the reasons that I love it. It's such an easy way to jazz up any any dish you're eating, even just a salad. What if you God forbid, buy a bag salad at the store. You could jazz it up with some flaky sea salt. So it's not just about the saltiness, it's about the texture. And like you were talking about with those larger hunks of salt on a chicken or, or on a fish. And it's it's crunchy, but it's it's one of those things that's hard to describe. It's a less salty salt, if you will. It gives you the salt flavor, but less saltiness than you'd get from a traditional salt shaker at a restaurant. But the beauty of it is, is that they all have such unique flavors. So we also have pink Himalayan salt. We have a red salt. We have black salt. We have you know, Hawaiian salt. We have um, gray French salt, which is more of like a sandy I know that texture. One. That's a good one. Sandy texture. Such a good one. And then there's the salts you can use on desserts, which is just a whole nother level. You know, we're looking at, at um, my kids love uh, looking at, they have a microscope and they, they look at the salt grains underneath the microscope because they're just all so exponentially different. It's like looking at snowflakes. But when you look at it down at this molecular level and think about the, the texture that it creates, a, a fine, sandy, gray salt versus a Maldon salt or a Jacobson that's, that's a very thin, flaky, delicate, fragile salt versus something like um, we have some from uh, a Hawaiian, like a black Hawaiian sea salt that I love on um, steaks, which is a very grainy, almost rocky, pebbly salt. They all have a different flavor. And then you get into the smoked salts. And now we're just in a whole nother category. But I think that that's what I love about it. Like we travel a lot. And, and one of the things that I always buy is salt, because no matter where you go, they all have a different flavor. Right. But they also don't expire. And it can vastly change a dish. If I sear up a steak for you in a cast iron, and I serve four different people for the same steak, they could change the entire flavor profile of their of their meal, depending on which salt they choose. Right. Well, and the, that's what makes it fun to experiment with. You made a really good point about compatibility. So like that big hunky rock salt, it's not going to go on a salad. That's not where that goes. And just like yeah. a very delicate... Uh, finishing salt probably going to get kind of beat up by a well seared New York strip. You just mm-hmm. not going to necessarily show up. So that's a really good point. Uh, I want to go back one second to the farming. I want to make sure I understand that the you mentioned the, the Angus Beef Coalition. Is that what it was? Certified Angus Beef brand. Certified Angus Beef brand. Now, one of the mm-hmm. and, and, and I agree with this complaint. One of the main complaints about ranching is the commercial factory farm, which is mostly now. This is this is where the politics comes in. Mostly made possible by the government and the Wholesome Meat Act of 1967. So that's. It's very hard to avoid. You have to be very, very deliberate to not participate in the commercial factory farm process. But when you find people who are engaged in the small 
family farms that are not part of that, that's worth pursuing. So I just want to clarify, this uh, is but sort of thing is beef brand. Are they sourcing from the smaller ranches and farms from around the country? Yes, they are. So they they have 13, 11, 11 different um What's the, I can't even, why am I losing my words today? 11 different standards that have to be met in order to be part of Certified Angus Beef Brand. And they only take these these smaller family-run farms, ranches, because they know that that's where they're going to get this quality from. So these ranches then have to produce cattle that that meet these criteria to, to meet those standards. And I mean, it's it's stuff that the average person wouldn't even think about, like a two inch hump on the back or, or a certain amount of fat and, and things that you wouldn't even know about. Because it's interesting, cattle... We're getting deep into it too. When you're going and cattle are being, the USDA is grading them. They're grading them on the entire carcass, not on the individual piece of meat. And just like humans, you know, you can look at it and you can put a stamp on it, but you're not going to get in there and see, I I hold a little bit more fat in my thighs than I do in my tummy, you know, that kind of a thing. So you're not necessarily, yeah, me too. So, you know, you, you can, if you, if you know beef, you can actually, if you know how to look at it well, can sometimes find different grades of beef that are maybe maybe a little bit more towards the prime edge as far as marbling and, and that kind of stuff. But um, Certified Angus Beef Brand is always at, at those higher levels and standards of beef, and they personally know all of their ranchers. In fact, all of their ranchers have a Certified Angus Beef Brand logo painted onto their barns because they're so proud to be a part of that brand. And the majority of them, 98% of them are family run as well as owned. So their you know, families living on the ranch, taking care of these cattle, like, like, like they're, I want to say pets, but like they're part of the family. But they also have pride in things like upcycling. So I'm not going to try to dig on like almond farmers and and vegetable farmers, but there are a lot of things that go to waste during almond farming. So one of the things that sometimes gets fed to cattle is, is some of the remnants from making almond milk. Sometimes it's carrot tops, uh, all those fun little carrots. I mean, I buy them for my kids, petite baby carrots in a bag. Well, where do all of those leftovers go well a lot of times they go to feed things like cattle or there's um there's a cattle ranch near me in pennsylvania and there's a very very large furniture manufacturer nearby and they use all of their wood chips to kind of upcycle things but also things like grasslands they partner with a local farmer that does vegetables and they allow the cattle to graze on plots of land that aren't being used for food to help the land come back to life, you know, we give it back nutrients and, and, and they use native grasslands instead of growing something special. Right. It's very much kind of this cycle of life thing instead of cows are farting too much and we're making food, you know, we're growing food just to feed the cows. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, cows are actually pretty expensive to 
to ranch. So you don't want to pay anything extra than you have to (laughs) to make a really good cattle to sell at market. And that goes into even like looking at, and again, I don't want to get too far into it, but like things like antibiotics and stuff like that. It would also be inhumane to not take care of an animal that was sick. But those sick animals typically don't go to market. And animals, especially cows, aren't necessarily given antibiotics unless they need to be. They don't need to grow bigger or fatter. They have a much longer life cycle and they are big and fat animals. They're not like chickens where we want to make them as fat as we can in the shortest amount of time so that they can get out there. So most cattle from smaller farms and ranches are actually antibiotic free they can't even go to market if they've been near that and they're they can't afford the organic stamp they can't afford the process of becoming organic so you'll see things like all natural which to me is always a cue of you know it's just a smaller rancher that couldn't afford the organic farm but it's also useless like what does that really mean i don't know but it's their way of trying to figure it out and navigate and communicate to the consumer that they have good ranching etiquette, I guess you will, um, techniques and and standards without having to pay for these much larger things like the organic stamp, which unfortunately is very costly and hard to do when you're a small, small farm. Yeah, there's probably a whole show just about the complete misinformation that is on a food label, organic or otherwise. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's usually it's all lies, but that's another show. Um, all right. Uh, I'm going to move into, yeah, before we get too far in the politics, I'm going to move into what's called the quick fire part of the show. And this is just some um, short little short questions with possibly short answers. Okay. Of the five flavors, sweet, Salty, sour, bitter, or umami? Which one's your favorite? Salty, by far. Of course. What's your favorite food? My mother's spaghetti and meatballs. Uh, what's your least favorite food? Liver. I want to like it. I just can't. I've, I've had so many people be like, but wait, taste mine. And I'll be like, yeah, I did. Still not a fan. Oh, my. It's all right. <laughs> What sound do you love? Uh, I love the sound of, and also the smell. I'm thinking about the smell, but also the sound of onions and garlic and olive oil in a pan. What an Italian. That's a good answer. What sound do you hate? Um, in the kitchen or just in general? In general. You pick. <laughs> My son's wine. I I hate to say that out loud. My son, when he was born, I texted my husband. He was at home with our daughter, and they said, "Your son's, your son sounds like a wounded dolphin when he cries." And I still, it's like nails on a chalkboard when I hear him start whining from upstairs. I'm like, oh, it's the dolphin again. Anyway, okay. I I, I know entirely that feeling. If we're going for kitchen noises, it's the fire alarm. Oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what gets you excited? Butter. 
I think about the things that I <laughs> I really, in addition to salt, I really like some good butter um, and possibly a vessel to get it like a socially acceptable way to get it from point A to point B. <laughs> it's, it's, so also bread. I, it's entirely possible that 99% of the people listening to this don't actually know what good butter is. Oh, it's life changing. I judge I judge restaurants based on their butter. Yeah, from Cisco, it's all the same. What turned you off? Um, that's a really hard question. To me, it's probably. I get annoyed with kind of, I don't want to say food snobs, but the people that, that just kind of, they, they can't have a regular meal. Like you said, like sitting down with your aunt who, who, who cooked for you for 30 years, like, you know, it's one meal out of your entire life. And I really think that in order to be able to celebrate, enjoy and appreciate the finer meals, you also have to remember that there are some not so fine meals out there and it's okay. It's just one meal out of your life. If you could cook for anyone ever, who would that be? Oh my gosh. These are like really hard questions. Um, you probably get this one a lot, but I'd say Anthony Bourdain. I got to cook with him once. I did. I got to cook with him once at this uh Jose Andres did a, a culinary event in Puerto Rico, which also interesting fact, I got Zika virus at, Ooh. but either, yeah, either, so I, I got to cook with him and, and Jose, but I, um, there were so many things I still wanted to talk about that I would love the chance to sit down and cook for him, but just be able to talk while I did it. Probably the slowest cook ever that day. Probably also the drunkest, but you know, it's all good. It's all right. If yeah, <laughs> yeah. you were drunk around Anthony, you were doing it right. You got to pop a bottle before you even get started. That's right. What is your favorite food indulgence? Favorite food indulgence? Um, I, this is going to sound silly, silly, but it goes back to the salty. I love really like salty kettle cooked potato chips. Hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, like if we're talking about every day, if we're talking about kind of more on on the gourmet side, I still really love a good steak, Man, like a really good, well-cooked steak. Nothing wrong with that. How can people follow you? Oh, gosh, I'm on Instagram, Savory Experiments. You can go to my website, savoryexperiments.com, and there are links to... Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, uh, Twitter, all the things, although I don't do all the things well like TikTok, but uh, <laughs> you can find me there. Uh, and you can also email me. It's Jessica at SavoryExperiments.com and Beef It Up, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. Awesome. Uh, do you have time to stick around for 10, 15 more minutes? Sure. All right, so I'm going to do. I'm going to say fake goodbye here. Uh, thank you for your time okay. today. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. It was a fun chat. Well, I'm, that was the goal. That was I, I win. I'm done. That's my Costanza moment.
<laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add Jessica's webpage link to the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 239, as well as a link to her book. There are a few links on that page this week, including the link for Pop Howard's Marinade. Let the tri-tip marinade in that, uh, in the marinade, <laughs> marinate in the marinade in a Ziploc bag overnight, then grill it to medium rare. Wrap the tri-tip in foil, then put that into a clean zip-top bag, then wrap that into a towel, and let it rest on the counter for 25 minutes. No kidding. Jessica's Chef Table bonus portion is up on the Patreon for subscribers. We had a nice chat and got into some good food philosophy. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. Next week, it looks like we're going to get back to the Escoffier series. <laughs> That's going to be fun. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.